All right, today we pick up our study in 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy 3. And for context, we're actually going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 so that not all of them will be up here. I once was at a church where a guy was said, he said he was reading scripture. And, you know, I just didn't have my Bible open. I opened it up. And he actually wasn't reading what the Bible said. So be a Brian, read your own Bible, have it out, make sure, you know, make sure uh, you'll, you'll catch all the words I say wrong. That happens every once in a while. So, but, uh, all right, First Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate. Prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that now you would bless this word, that you would bless us by giving us soft hearts, ready and willing to receive this word, to ponder it, to meditate on it in the coming week, to see how you are calling us to repentance, and how you are building us up by the word of your grace that's making us more like Jesus. Lord, we pray that we all would grow into spiritual maturity. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Well, let's do a quick review. Paul had two main goals in writing 1 Timothy. First, he was writing this letter to strengthen and encourage Timothy, who was pastoring the church of Ephesus. Second, Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to finish the work he had started. So, uh, in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So this is a letter about how the church, as an individual local congregation, is the function, how to order the church. And in first, uh, the chapter 1, Paul exhorts Timothy to deal with wayward leaders in Ephesus who were teaching false doctrine. These guys uh, were wrongly teaching the law of God. And so the first thing he starts up with is you got to correct this. And he encourages him to take heart because it's hard. Conflict is hard. And then in chapter 2, Paul exhorts Timothy to rightly order public worship. He says that there should be these sort of prayers. We like want to see the men doing this, the women doing that. It all should be rightly ordered. And now, in chapter 3, Paul is laying out the qualifications for leaders in the church. This week and next, we'll look at the qualification for elders. Now, if you look at verse 1, you'll see that it says overseer and not elder. But overseer and elder refer to the same office. It's just emphasizing different uh, aspects of this. And we we can see this real easy by looking at Titus uh, 1. It's got a a nearly identical list for the qualifications of elders. And in verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. 
Then he gives the same qualifications, and down in verse 7, he says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, etc., etc. So this is talking about elders. Elder, uh, elders are people who oversee the church of God. Now, not just anyone can be an elder. There are qualifications. And in verse 10, it says, These men, referring to deacons, must also be tested. And that's, that's including elders. I mean, it, it only, it also logically follows if deacons who manage the more practical side of the church, uh, have to be tested. Why would the elders who manage the spiritual, oversee the spiritual not need to be tested? They do. Um, and that's why we have these qualifications. They must go through a period of testing and training to see if they're qualified to hold the office of elder. Various churches and denominations do this different ways. Some churches require people to go to seminary. Most churches uh, require them to at least have some sort of interview and examination process. That's left to an individual church and denomination to determine how they're going to do that. And uh, we in the CRC, we, we have people go through ordination exams. We have them fill out papers and demonstrate that they actually understand the original language at some working level. And I've sat on a couple of those committees. And it's wonderful to go through a testing process and then have people lay hands on you and confirm, like, yes, right? That gives you uh, confidence when you're, you're doing your work. So they have to be tested. Now, in essence, what has to be figured out is do the elders match all these things? And the way I would sum it up is that they need to be spiritually mature men. That's the main thing. Uh, So the qualifications are something we should all aspire to, especially if you aspire to the office of elder. We all want to aspire to spiritual maturity. And this does apply uh, first and foremost to men, but obviously a lot of these things overlap into women as well. Uh, But regardless, uh, this shows us what a man should be. So boys, this is the sort of man you should want to be. Girls, this is the sort of man you should want to marry. And fathers and mothers, these are the areas you want to see your sons excel in. You know, so often we see parents lose their kids because they want them to excel in sports and academia. And those are things you should, those are good things. I learned a lot by playing football, wrestling, swimming, you know, cross country. I didn't learn much in cross country. I learned that little people are really fast. And even though you're bigger than them, you're not allowed to pick them up and throw them. In reality, even back then, I, I wouldn't have been able to cu- catch them. So. <laughs> so, but in most sports, I learned good things. There's, there's good things there. And you should use your mind to love God with everything you got, right? We should love creation. Science belongs to us because knowledge belongs to us. And God made this world. And so we want to encourage our young people to be excellent in all things and push themselves. But how often do parents focus on those things and not character development, only to lose their kids to the world later on? And so we want to hold all these things together. We want to see our children grow into spiritually mature men, not just people that are excellent uh, physically and excellent intellectually, but spiritually. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? Here's my working definition. A spiritually mature man is one who, because he is under the rule of Lord Jesus, 
is able to first rule over himself well, both in body and soul. And then out of that, he can rule those given to his care, beginning with his own household. So I use the word rule on purpose because it stresses the reality uh, that to be mature requires the godly exercising of authority. An overseer doesn't just observe. He's not just watching. He's not just hoping, thoughts and prayers that people will do the right thing. He directs, he commands, he exercises authority. Now, some might object to the word rule because they associate it with a tyrant or an oppressive leader. I get that. I have known my fair share of men who abuse and misuse their authority. A couple years ago, I was thinking, do I want to stay in the ministry? I had so many negative experiences with other pastors. And I was like, is this for me? And it, it, it took a lot of soul searching. And here I am. So, um, but we've all suffered under that type of rule. We all have. Our, our civil government is full of men like this. And if you've worked uh, in the workplace for any time, you've certainly seen these sort of men in management as well. And they are absolutely in the church. Now, I was on Moody Radio and uh, I found myself disagreeing with the guy way more than I wanted to. It was a very awkward, uh, it got a little awkward at a few points. But um, he was he was kind of talking about, well, you have to agree that there's been really tyrannical bad men and et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I don't disagree. Uh, but I actually think the church's main problem, at least today, is men who fail to exercise their authority out of laziness or they're cowards. So they misuse their authority, or their misuse of authority, excuse me, is one of abdication. It's a failure of duty because of a failure of nerve. That's what you find. The church is, by and large, ruled by a managerial class of people-pleasing weak men. It's what they are. I call them nice guys, right? Nice means agreeable. It's not a virtue. Kindness, gentleness, meekness, those are biblical virtues. It's good to be kind, gentle, and meek. But nice can be both good and bad. It's good to be agreeable with good things. It is, however, bad to be agreeable with bad things. And with these nice guys, one of their main drives is to maintain an agreeable environment defined by everyone staying agreeable. Everyone everyone be nice. Everyone get along. They live and lead by the 11th commandment. Thou shall be nice, right? So if you aren't nice, that is, if you question or push back or rock the boat in any significant way, they will perceive you as an enemy. You will find that those men full of big smiles and soft words can quickly transform into tyrants. This is the hard lesson evangelicals learned in the last couple of years. These nice guy pastors are nice so long as they have a stable system and structure to manage. They're not men that know how to build things. That's not what they teach you in seminary, right? They teach you how to manage a system. And that's everything's great with managing systems until things go wrong. And many of these guys are okay preachers. Some are even really good, and they're all right counselors. Many of them teach true biblical doctrine, and they'll even, on occasion, take small calculated risk. You know, uh, you know, when you're in a nice guy church, 
where someone says something that to you is just like, uh-huh. And everyone's like, oh, can you believe he said that? You're like, huh, okay, that's a risk in this church. Like, oh, my goodness, all right. Um, well, and they, they are okay peacetime leaders, right? They aren't altogether bad men. That's not what I'm trying to say. Again, so as long as everything remains stable and well-ordered. Well, that stability and well-orderedness in our culture got all blown to pieces when our government shut down businesses and mandated things which should be voluntary and told Christians that they may not gather for public worship. Then we saw our peacetime nice guy church leaders freak out, like in mass, across all of America. There, there is a great resettlement. People are moving all over the country. And also churches, big churches turned into small churches in a matter of a couple of months. People are moving all around. People have been disheveled. And I think why a big reason is that we were suddenly in an undeniable spiritual and cultural war that demanded that these pastors take a stand, hard stands, one where there is like no agreeableness. You have two sides that you can't reconcile, right? One says, no, we shouldn't meet for public worship. And the other says, we should. And there's not many middle grounds. They tried. Like, well, we'll do a mass service and a not mass service. And we'll do, uh, we'll actually, <laughs> some are doing basically lotteries. Because you only could have so many people in your church. So you had to win the lottery to go to church. I, I wish people thought about church that way, that they were that excited. But, um, <clears throat> but that's not good. And so these guys... Uh, we're required to take a stand, but you have to remember they're driven by a desire to maintain agreeableness. So they, many of them, fell in line with governmental overreach, right? I'm not, I'm not some anarchist. I'm not a libertarian. So I, I think government is ordained by God. I don't think government's evil. Um, I think there's a right exercising of authority that we shouldn't kick against. But I think, to at least... A reasonable mind, we can all agree on a spectrum. Things got out of control the last couple of years with government overreach. To these guys, they went along with it and they shut down public worship. And they mandated all sorts of silly measures. Really, like I was just at a birthday party for a friend that turned 40. And these people were like taking their mask on and off. Like they'd have them on for 30 minutes and take them off for 30 minutes. And I was like, what magic is this? <laughs> like, I, don't, I'm not, I don't care if you wear a mask or don't. But one's mind can't wrap around the logic of this, uh, perhaps because there is none, right? And so what happened is they, they did things that didn't make sense. And people who loved them and trust them and have been underneath them for a long time started to push back and say, hey, uh, what? Well, how does this do anything? You know? And then what happened? With these guys, people pleasers, smiley guys, happy guys, guys that go along, guys that don't rock the boat, guys that have never said, submit to my authority. Almost overnight, they went through a transformation and they demanded silence and submission. Right? Demanded. How dare you? We're elders. You'd never heard them say anything like that. It was wild. Right, It was wild. I suddenly saw churches talking about submission and authority, and I had never heard them talk about that. I mean, the Puritans do, the Reformers do, the Bible does, 
but that rocks the boat. No one likes, like the word rule rocks the boat, right? And I never heard these guys do that because they don't rock boats. But now the boat's rocking, and they're trying to find stability. And they're freaking out. And so they've got to bring an end to this tension. Put this conflict down. And then they guilted and manipulated. Don't you love old people? No. No, of course we do. That's why I would, no, I don't like old people. I guess I love old people. Don't you, what about the immune afflicted? Well, I'm one of those, but yes, I love them too. Well, if you do, you'll do what we tell you, right? How dare you question? You are a hater of your brethren. I mean, it it, it got laid on thick at various levels in various churches, but man, what you find out is that tyrants and nice guys are two sides of the same coin. That's the same thing. They're bad rulers because they will not rule themselves. That's what it comes down to. If you won't rule yourself, you can't rule your family well. And if you won't rule well in your family, you won't rule well in the church either. Now, people object to the word rule, and I don't care. First Timothy 5.17 says, The elders rule well, or the elders who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, and especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. We will not tune Scripture to our culture. We will tune culture to Scripture, right? And you can overemphasize things, but I don't know when the last time I said rule in a sermon. I'm going to say it a lot today, so I might make up for it. But the elders who rule, don't you mean lead? I mean rule. It says rule. Yes, we lead, but it's connected to rule. Ruling is essential to the work of eldership. It is essential to all leadership. There is no way around it. I went and looked at the Greek word and the Greek forms. It's a verb. It doesn't mean anything else. It's the same thing in every other translation. I just wanted to make sure. There's a Hebrew one too in Proverbs 16, verse 32. Rule. But ruling well is not primarily a matter of skill or technique or charisma. It's a matter of character. Trials, challenges, and difficulties will melt away the facade of method and technique and charisma to reveal the underlying character of a man or a church. All the best technique in the world will never make up for the lack of character. It never will. I love Kipling's poem, If. Love it. It's my favorite poem. Listen to it. He gets maturity. Didn't know you are coming to church for Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss. And lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on 
when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. We can cribble with some of Kipling's statements, but his overall focus is right. Character is what defines a man. Kipling's mature man is a man who has control over his inner life. He isn't an emotionless android, but generally speaking, he has control over his passions, desires, and appetite. He can direct himself. He can say no to himself, and he can say yes to himself when he doesn't want to. When all the world's pushing on him, when all the pressures and circumstances are difficult, he will stand by his mission. He will do it. Now look at the list for qualifications of elders. It's heavy on character. In terms of skill, there are two or three. Right, The obvious two is an elder must be able to teach. Sometimes people say there's only one, but I think that's wrong because manage his own household well, I see as a skill, right? That's something you develop over time and you learn. And perhaps a third one would be hospitable because hospitable is not just being nice, but actually knowing how to host people. But that, those are the three at most. The rest of the qualifications are all matters of personal character and virtue. And that is because an elder above all things must be able to maintain his nerve. He must be a man of deep self-control and self-mastery, a man of self-rule. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Young man, if you want a life verse, a verse to memorize, that's the one right there. A lot of people can lead in times of ease and peace. But when everyone is losing their head, it's the man of character you want in charge. It's the man who's slow to anger, anxiety, and fear. It's the man who rules his spirit well. So self-rule is the foundation for all rulership and leadership because it's self-rule, self-control, self-mastery, which produces character over time. And character comes through discipline, and discipline starts with self-rule. I have a lot of young men that email me and ask, tell me they want to go into the ministry, right? And they always say, what seminary should I go to? I hear it all the time. Why? Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, right? Um, how old are you? Uh, you know, I'm 20, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then, uh, well, what's your spiritual disciplines? You know, what do you, what do, you do? Like, you, you got a Bible reading plan? What's your prayer life look like? Do you go to church every Sunday? I mean, I know you all might think these are basic questions, but these are, uh, there's a lot of horses out there being forced to push carts, okay? Um, and these young men, what you find a lot of time is that they, they haven't developed the character they'll need to lead. And seminaries don't really focus on character development. I don't know that they can. I'm not anti-seminary. I went to one. My dream is this. My dream is that seminaries would not teach people anything on pastoral care or church management at all. They would just stay out of it. 
and they would do all the heavy systematics and biblical theology and the, the original language. They'd stay in that other area, and then we would have really intense internships because some of these things you just you can only learn by doing them. You can only learn how to talk to someone when their child just got hit by a car and died by being in those. You can't, you know, you can't do that by by reading a book. I'm not saying you you shouldn't, but these people have to be trained just like Jesus trained people. He walked alongside them as an apprenticeship model. But you also have to you have to know the truth. Like you have to know if someone says that uh that the spirit the Father, Spirit, and Sons are manifestations of God, that that person's a heretic, probably. Manifest, that's oneness Pentecostalism or Sabellianism. That means they actually think that there's one God that wears three masks, not actual three persons. Right? You do have to be trained to hear these things and to exposit the word and think through this. But you also have to develop character, men of character, right? There's a lot of people that maybe weren't the best shots, in war, but they were men of character, and they're the ones that did what was right when it was down. You can have all the strategy in the world, but if you don't have character, it will not matter. Character, to paraphrase Peter Drucker, character eats strategy for breakfast, okay? V. Raymond, Raymond Edmond says, one of my favorite quotes, ours is an undisciplined age. The old disciplines are breaking down. Above all, the discipline of divine grace is derided as legalism or is entirely unknown to a generation that is largely illiterate in the scriptures. We need the rugged strength of Christian character that can only come from discipline. I love that. An elder is a man who possesses the rugged strength of Christian character that can only come from discipline. That's what a mature man should be, but that's what an elder must be. He must be a man of rugged Christian character. And that's the biggest problem in the church today. We are plagued by unqualified elders. Right? These men may be successful business leaders. I've known many P&G execs who have taken pastorates around Cincinnati, and it's of mixed fruit. No doubt that they're great in P&G, and there are some things that translate over to a church, but the church is ultimately not a business corporation. They may be gifted speakers, full of charisma. Church history, especially modern history, are full of these men. Very captivating speakers. But they lacked character, so their ministry was short-lived because they stole money or uh, committed adultery or whatever. And sometimes we'll pick our leaders, just because, oh, but his gifts, I don't want to see his gifts go to waste. Well, he's the one that wasted them, right? They may have a wonderful bedside manner. It's good to have someone that has a good bedside That's why we have John Weiss here, okay, to offset me. John's, you know, his bedside manner um, helps keep the eldership balance here, you know? They may be innovative organizational gurus. I mean, there's some people out there, the way they organize churches is genius. I'm amazed by it. I actually think megachurches, like churches can learn from megachurches. They, they do really good at communication. That's why uh, we sat down over this last week and plotted out the whole year for the church to get ahead of things. 
and I, I'll listen to those guys. I want to learn from them. But the church is not just like a social action, you know, organization. It's, it's a spiritual family. And they may be wonderful marketers that know how to carefully nuance hard things. That's what really did a lot of churches in this past couple of years, is that uh, people are like, well, it's this PC corporate talk. We've all had emails like that in our corporations where they're trying to like make something hard. Uh, it's like when I, when someone calls for a former employee at my, my job, is I always say, well, he's moved on to greener pastures. It's like always slightly tongue in cheek. Um, so they may be all those things, but if they lack the rugged strength of Christian character, they are unqualified to be an elder. They cannot be an elder. Because in verse 2, Paul says, an overseer then must be above reproach. And I found Kent Hughes helpful on this. He writes, above reproach refers to his observable conduct. This apparently summarizes all the fallen qualifications. For we see that the final qualification is also about reputation. This is verse 7. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Such should be his reputation that if the elder's name were posted for comment, no one be able to bring a substantiated, keyword charge against him in respect to anything in that following list. So two things. First, above reproach doesn't mean that he's perfect in all these things, but just that they... Uh, are the general reality of their life, that he's representative of those things. It's like the word blameless in some translations, that all these things you see in his life um, in in a mature manner. We're to hold leaders to high standards, uh, but not to impossible standards. And that's a balance we kind of have to strike, right? Is that I have seen that. I've seen guys that have been in training to be a pastor for like 12 years. You know, I'm like, hey, man, I just either become one or quit. (laughs) That's That's a long time. Either you got it, you don't. I've seen certain reform denominations really drag it out. And I'm like, 12 years, either he has it or he doesn't. Um so we, we have to hold them to high standards, but it's not impossible. Elders still have to fight sin like us all, and that's a battle that ebbs and flows for everyone. I once wrote a blog post years ago called John Piper Screams at His Wife. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was kind of like satirical, and it's just she didn't bring the right thing to the church picnic, and they're out in the parking lot, and he's screaming at her because he's frustrated, right? And people like, do you have proof of this? Have you talked to John Piper? Matthew 18, like they're going off. And I'm like, hey, I put this as satire at the top, okay? But my whole point I was making is that people who just listen to that guy talk, right? He, When you're up here, usually you've done your prep work and you're on your best behavior. You present very well, right? This is like, it's funny. Someone once told me like, oh, you look like you live the most exciting life. I'm like, hey, man, you post the highlights, the social media, you, you post, like, if you're going to put your food on there, people seem to like to do that, right? It's, a, it's not like a hot dog without anything on it that you got at UDF, right? It's like, you know, shrimp and it's all fancy. You don't just, you know, you, you, those are, th- that's not, are you showing off? Well, I'm showing off the food, showing off the good time I had. I thought maybe you would want to say that's cool with me, you know? But, uh, no, that's not what the whole life looks like. 
It's not like that all the time. It's like when people watch boxing, they, they slowly realize that Rocky, as entertaining as it might be, is not reality most of the time. So I wrote this post, and my whole point was that John Piper's not perfect, right? And it's easy for you to hero worship him when you don't know him. But if you're around elders and deacons and leaders in church, you will see that they have sins like you do too. And that doesn't mean that they're disqualified. You know, when people get uh, mad and leave a church, they list off everything you ever did wrong. You're like, it's even worse. That's what I tell them. It's even worse. I've done worse things than your list, you know? But they must be men that demonstrate sustained victory and discipline in these areas. They must be. Second, being above reproach or well thought of by outsiders doesn't mean that everyone must like your pastor or your elder. Quite the opposite. John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So being above reproach doesn't mean uh, that, that you don't, the reality of your life doesn't offend some people. Like, if you, beware when all men speak well of you. Right? You, you judge a man by his friends and his enemies. Right? We want to have the right enemies. doesn't mean that you go out looking for them. You don't have to. Just follow Jesus, live a holy life, and they'll find you. Okay, They'll find you. So above reproach doesn't mean perfect at all. Now, here's why this really matters. Why getting the character of elders matter big time. There is a symbiotic relationship between elders and their congregation. It's huge. And if the elder, uh, the elders are introverted, the congregation will tend to kind of act out introversion. They won't have people over that often. Um, they won't be, I've, I've been to churches where like you, they don't greet anybody, you know? And if you're, you have really extroverted elders, you introverts will still come and hide because they're crafty that way, you know? They come in, like when the song's already started and leave in the last one, the benediction, they're like out to the door. Uh, but extroverts can't stand introverted churches. They, they don't last long. But if you have really extroverted people, you attract more extroverted people. If you're always talking about hell, then your people always talk about hell. If you're always nuancing sin and making a, a backdoor of escape so no one has any hard edges, they do the same thing. Just, you know, the blessing of your children is that they show you, they reflect you back to you, right? Their anger reflects your anger back. You, you, oh, that's me. That's me. You know, I, I one, and I don't understand how some of this stuff works. Some of it is uh, crazy. Like I sleep with my hands behind my head like that sometimes. And like all my kids, they come out the womb and like when they sleep, they're like laying like that, have that little chill vibe. I like it. <laughs> but, um, but our children are, are canaries in the coal mine. They're leading indicators of what's going on with us, and so it is in churches. You see problems in churches, you can trace it almost always back 
to the character of the elders. Even if it's not immediately apparent, it becomes apparent down the road. That's the issue. You got really arrogant, divisive people. Arrogant, divisive elder, almost certainly. So that's one way it goes, but it's kind of a weird symbiotic relationship because congregations, Christians, will choose elders that reflect their desires, even if they're evil desires sometimes, right? And so what you find in Scripture is when God gives a nation a leader, it's reflective of them. And so I, I viewed these last couple of leaders that we've been given at a national level as a judgment on us as a people. That we are, we are, we can criticize those leaders and rightly so, but a lot of their compromises are compromises in our own life. Like I had a friend that was criticizing the welfare state. All right. Good, good. Fine. He was on welfare though. And I was like, what would you do? If they got rid of this stuff, how would you live? Right? So you can say that, but I think this reflects your character. And the reason I bring it up is I'll beat up on elders all day long, because I am one. And I'll defend them all day long, too, because I am one. Uh, and people like that. But if you have bad elders, you are partially to blame. You are partially to blame by filling those pews at those churches and choosing usually charisma, slick programs, whatever, over that rugged Christian character, right? Over that. And we always should be people looking for where we can take responsibility for things. And elders need to take responsibility for how their sins have been multiplied into the church. But a church has to understand we didn't get like, uh, weak men didn't just take over the church with ease. That's not it. We supported them. We got behind them because we liked that they went easy on us. Right? That's what happened. I had uh, my, my, uh, one of my history professors would always talk about the uh, conspiracy of lazy professors and lazy students. Right? The professor doesn't want to grade stuff. So he doesn't give homework. And the students are like, I don't want to learn. Like, so I want the credit. <laughs> I want to get through it. Especially when it's like, African history, like one something, <laughs> but um, well, there's there's a conspiracy of morally complicit or uh, of weak pastors and, and weak Christians, right? They exist. What we need to get back to in our churches is emphasizing the importance of character and virtue and holiness, not just skill, not just presentation. Not just charisma. Not that those things don't matter. God works through all those things. You can't read the Old Testament and the New Testament and not see God working through personalities. Like I see that all the time. And so big personalities, if they're disciplined, aren't all bad. Charisma's not all bad. But we can't build churches on that. We build churches on the gospel. We build churches on the word of God and men who have been surrendered to the word of God as demonstrated by the quality of their life. And so when we choose elders, it can't just be because they're success in the business world, but because they are spiritually mature men who fear God. You can't just pick men who perform well. That's why you have to be slow in installing people sometimes. We were very blessed at East River. 
uh, because uh, I've known Hank for a long time. I've known John for several years. And David and I go way back and have worked together for a really long time. It allowed us to get some elders in here fairly quick. Um, but you have to test people's character. We need people that do the right thing because they love him who first loved them. That's what we need. That's character. God sees everything. That If that scares you, there's things to repent of. Let that also be a comfort. Like what you do in the secret places, God sees and he's pleased. And we need to, uh, this is what we need to focus on, spiritual maturity. I like what Tozer says. This is what we need. We need these sort of men. You got to tweak a few of his words because it's Tozer, but this is, uh, I'll close with this. If Christianity is to receive a rejuvenation, it must be by other means than any now being used. If the church in the second half of the century is to recover from the injuries she suffered in the first half, this is, this is like in the 50s or 60s, so you know, we're, it's even worse, okay? If she's to recover, there must appear a new type of preacher. The proper ruler of the synagogue type will never do. Neither will the priestly type of man who carries out his duties, takes his pay, and asks no questions. Nor the smooth-talking pastoral type who knows how to make the Christian religion acceptable to everyone. All these have been tried and found wanting. Another kind of religious leader must arise among us. He must be the old prophet type, a man who has seen visions of God and has heard a voice from the throne. He doesn't mean that literally. Um, when he comes, and I pray God that there will be not one but many, he will stand in flat contradiction to everything our smirking, smooth civilization holds dear. He will contradict, denounce, and protest in the name of God and will earn the hatred and opposition of a large segment of Christendom. Such a man is likely to be lean, rugged, blunt-spoken, a little bit angry with the world. He will love Christ in the souls of men to the point of willingness to die for the glory of the one and the salvation of the other. But he will fear nothing that breathes with mortal breath. The only way to be fearless of men is to fear God. Only way. And that is what a spiritually mature man looks like. He's above reproach because he fears God, and that trickles down into the whole of his life. And next week we'll look at the particular, particular qualities that that manifests. But may God fill not just the pulpits with men like that, but the pews, the seats, people that are spiritually mature and love the Lord. May God build us up by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stirs us, it pushes us. We thank you that your church is unlike any organization on this earth. It's upside down. It looks for those who put others first, put you first, that hate sin and love holiness, for those that don't preach their own gospel, but trust in the gospel of your son alone. Father, we pray that that's what we would be at this church, that our elders will be qualified and that they fear you, that our families would be built around growing in holiness. Father, that we would see our sons and daughters grow up to be mature men and women of God. Please bless us with this. God, help us to reflect your light
back out into the world. We thank you for all this in your son's name. Amen.